All right, so we are here with you today on the Biblos Network to talk about a few things that we feel people need to know, people want to know, and um, educating, empowering, strengthening people to learn more about their faith, the Bible, and I guess that's multifaceted. That that comes down to apostolic Christians who learn what they believe and are able to articulate what they believe, and it also boils down and affects people that know nothing about apostolics and wonder why, why do they believe that? Why don't they just be like us? What's the big deal? Are we just talking about semantics here? And these topics have far-reaching consequences. There are powerful ramifications to the ideologies and the doctrines of the Bible. The doctrines of the Bible are powerful, powerful spiritual constructs that God put there for a reason. So today we are going to be talking about why apostolic Christians believe that there is one God. And when I say that, I mean why they insist on believing in absolute numerical oneness of God. And another way of saying that might be why we do not subscribe to the idea of the Trinity. We are not Trinitarian people. And this is a really big topic. It's something that a lot of folks, they don't know why. They don't know why we believe this. They think that it's a weird or odd thing. They've taken great pains to um, caricaturize us as strange. But the truth is that God's essential oneness in nature is a fundamental truth in the Bible, a powerful truth in the Bible, and it ultimately means that a faith will rise and fall based on it. So we're going to talk about all that. So everybody that wants to know why we believe this or Christians that would like to have their faith strengthened a little bit, maybe this will help you. I hope that it does. I hope we can be a blessing of some kind and we can edify you. And maybe you got a friend or somebody that, that wants to know, has questions. Hopefully I can cover some of the very common, typical questions that people have and we can go over those. So why don't we believe the Trinity? Why do we believe that God is one? Why the idea of one has been hijacked by the Trinity to mean something the Bible never intended for it to mean? And why it even matters? Does it matter? The answer resoundingly is yes, it matters. Okay, so let's talk about some of the philosophical dynamics about the Trinity, why we believe it, why we don't believe it, rather, and why we do believe in one God, numerically one God. Um, the first thing is that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And 
I know that sounds simple, but it's kind of a big deal that if you're going to believe something, it should be in the Bible somewhere. But it's not. It doesn't exist. It, um, it is a religious construct. It is a flawed assumption that was inserted into what was called Christianity early, early on. And there's a lot of history to this. Um, there were groups of people that were vying for control very early in the early church. And this is a century, a century and a half after Jesus died, was resurrected, and his apostles were going out to, to reach the world and preach the gospel. Um, there were groups of people that were struggling for control of the narrative. What are we going to believe? What are we not going to believe? Well, eventually they got to um, the idea that we're going to describe what God is, what is God made of. And as they grappled with that, there were a lot of different forces and influences that were brought to bear during that time. There were Trinitarian people there who believed that God was a certain way. There were group groups of people called um, Sabellians, and um, there were other vying, controlling groups. But but they they wrestled with this concept. They tried to describe who God was, what God was, and how the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost worked together. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to people today. You say, well, I just want to go to a church. I want it to be pretty. I want it to be safe. I'd like there to be padded pews and air condition and let my kids go have a nice time in the Sunday school or nursery and give me a nice message and then I'll go home. And that's all I want in my church. And on the surface, that might sound nice, but it's kind of a big deal that you actually do what the Bible is teaching because anything else isn't going to work. Ultimately, it will not work. Ultimately, it will fail. It will fail to produce the same product that the original church produced. There's a reason why it was so influential. There's a reason why it became the cornerstone of Western civilization. So we're going to talk about that. Um, the idea that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Godhead is the nature of God. The idea that there are three is blasphemy in the scripture, that there are three persons. Now this, this comes from a guy named Tertullian. Tertullian came up with this concept. Um, it was floating around during that time. That, that, and it was a way to describe God. He was trying to describe God, and a lot of influences were coming to bear on this early church. So the early church was Jewish. It was completely Jewish, monotheistic Jews who were following um, Yeshua Ha Moshea. Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. And they were blazing it around the world. It was taking off like wildfire. It was flourishing in ancient Palestine and, and down into Rome and into Europe and Asia. And so these original Jews had this message. They were then strongly influenced by the places that they went into. So one of the powerful world ideas during that time and, and cultures was the nation and the culture of Greece and, and Rome. So they call that the Greco-Roman ideology or mindset. That was a powerful um, influence during that time. And 
one of the words that they use for the Greek, Greek influence on the world was Hellenization. And so Helen, the Hellenized world was, was a world that was heavily influenced by Greece. It was heavily influenced by Rome. And that early church allowed Greco-Roman ideologies to begin to creep into it and influence it. People that came in didn't have that original monotheist Jewish background. They had a polytheistic. That's a fancy word that means multiple gods. They had a different mindset. This was a time of Zeus and Apollos and Hera. Zeus's wife and, um, you know, a host of other Greek gods in the pantheon of the, of the gods of Greece that became uh, Roman gods later, Jupiter and Mercury and all the people that, um, the gods of that day that we named our planets and our solar system after. Um, they were influenced by this polytheistic society. And when that happened, Tertullian basically was trying to come up with a term that could accurately describe God. God is the Father, he's the Son, he's the Holy Ghost. And the way he described that was God in tres personae, God in three persons. And back then, the word person actually was the word personae, which we would, in modern English, we would call it a persona. It was an ancient theater term. And the idea was that just like in the ancient theater, a, an actor could take on several personas. They, one, in one scene, they could be an old man. In the next scene, they could be um, a woman. In the next scene, they could be a young man. It could be the same actor in several different guises or several different get-ups, acting theatrical get-ups. So his idea was, hey, let's describe it to these Gentiles that don't understand anything. And so it's God in tres personae, um, God in three persons. Over time, the word persona morphed and it changed. That, that happens in languages. Words change and take on new meanings. And it, it stopped meaning um, a, a mask that you wear or a getup that you wear. And it began to mean individual personality. It, it calcified, it solidified into persons, separate beings, so that the idea then becomes over time, that there are three people or persons that make up God. And they each have their own mind. They have their own will. They are co-equal, co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. They're made out of the same stuff, but yet somehow they're three. And, and ultimately, if you talk long enough with someone who believes this, they will tell you that it's an incomprehensible mystery and we just have to take it by faith. And that is not true. Uh, the reason it's not true is because none of that is in the Bible. The idea that there are three persons is anathema to Jewish people, to Muslim people, and to apostolic Christians and other Christians that subscribe to this idea. Now, here is something to consider. In the Western world, United States and Europe, oneness apostolicism, one God people, numerically one God people, are uh, they are a minority. Most people that call themselves Christians are what you would call Trinitarians. Um, and it's true that we are a minority here. We have been for a long time. We are growing. We are growing more powerful, more strong as the years go by, and there's reasons for that. One of the reasons why denominal Christianity and fundamental uh, evangelicism and um, denominationalism is withering. It's dying, just like it died in Western Europe. And great 
churches and cathedrals are now tourist attractions. That is happening here in the United States. So while there are some pockets that are growing because of charismatic leaders and because of um, good management and business practices, it is becoming a business. It's becoming an educational endeavor. It's becoming a, a social movement. We're going to feed the homeless. We're going to we're going to help the poor. We're going to, and, and that's all great, and we do that. But that is not what the original church was built for. And that's happening here in the United States. So, so there are people that are walking away from churches. They are, they are going instead to stadiums and, and to entertainment venues and to concerts and to every place but church because the underpinnings are not authentic. At the same time that's happening, apostolic Christians are growing. They are growing strong. And it's worrying Trinitarians. They're wondering why. Why is this happening? How are these people growing? And we're not growing. We're growing like wildfire in third world countries. Pentecost is sweeping the world um, in South America, Central America, in Asia, uh, even in Russia, where communism stifled it for so long. Apostolicism, Pentecostalism is growing. And... Um, so we're not about the cathedrals and the, the, the beautiful edifice that you see that, that is so, such a glory to the works of men, but it's much more about what you believe, how you live your life, how you love your neighbor, and that doctrinal underpinning, the foundation of it is that there is only one God. So here's something people don't know. Do you know that the greatest commandment in the Bible is that there's one God? Jesus said that. If you look at Mark chapter 12, um, verses 28 to 31, 32, somebody, a young man came to Jesus and said to him, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus' response to him was, he, he quoted to him the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he said, there's no other commandment greater than that. And the second commandment is like it, and that is that you will love your neighbor as yourself. That is the Shema. Now, Matthew 22, Matthew recorded the same thing that Mark did. But when Matthew says it, he says it a little different. He adds a few details. One of the details is he quotes the Shema again. And then he says, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That means on the fact that there's one God and you're to love him with everything you have and the fact that you love your neighbor, everything in all of the scripture hangs on those two things. So, so when you take away the fact that there is one God, you are taking away the, the cornerstone, the foundation of what Christianity is. And it gave rise to denominationalism. It gave, and, and there are people right now, they're atheistic people, they're atheists, they're agnostics. <clears throat> let, me, let me say something to you, because many of my friends fall into this camp, unbelievers. The reason why the vast majority of times is because they have run into horrible abuses in what is called the church. They've been hurt by someone. They have been betrayed by someone. Uh, God help us, they've been abused by someone who claims to be a Christian, they've seen blatant hypocrisy, they've seen misuse of funds, they've seen terrible, terrible 
abuses of power. And they say, if that's the church, then I don't want anything to do with that. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And the truth is, it's not that they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the people who claim to be his sons and daughters. They don't believe in Christians. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater and they say, we're not going to believe that. The truth is that there is a real church. And the cornerstone of it is that there is numerically one God. So Mark 12, Matthew 22 says the greatest commandment is that there's one God. And so is it a big deal? You better believe it's a big deal. It is the biggest deal. Nothing else matters if you can't get that right. Here's something that people need to consider. Americans don't know why Muslims get so angry. Um, What's the big deal with Muslims? The same reason why, or, or one of the reasons why apostolics and Jews and Muslims reject Trinitarianism is because we all know that in essence, persons in the Godhead is an abomination to the Bible. It's an abomination to God. Over 300 times, God says there's only one God. And in a few verses, he'll use plural pronouns that people twist and distort to try to say something that that doesn't say. It never says there's a Trinity. It never says there's these persons. But yet, Western, Hellenized, Greco-Roman philosophy shoved this narrative onto the early church, and it has never fit. It has created all the abuses throughout the Dark Ages in the early church and even into today. And so earlier, I said that oneness Pentecostals are a minority in Western cultures, and it is true to a degree. However, we are not the minority in the world. We are by far the majority. Trinitarian ideology is a very small part of the faith community in that sense, because if you include Jews, Muslims, and oneness believing people, um, you will find out that most of them believe that there is numerically one God. And as a matter of fact, most Trinitarians, laymen, I mean, believe that. If you ask the average guy that's walking down the street that goes to some church somewhere and you say, Hey, do you believe that there's three gods? He'll go, no, of course not. There's only one God. And if you speak to a Trinitarian theologian and philosopher, what they'll say to you is, of course we don't believe there's three gods. We believe there's one God. And, And they'll get angry over the fact that that might be suggested. The problem is the corruption of the word one and the ideology that there's three persons. And they'll say, well, you can't understand it. It's this great mystery. No, you can understand it. It is a great mystery, but it can be understood. There is a reason why God did things the way he did them. And and there are not three persons in God. There is one God. He has an identity, and he reveals himself in a multitude of ways. So um, we are strict numerical monotheists. And here's why that's a big deal. Uh, several Several years ago, there was a a uh, Mujahideen soldier, we would call him a terrorist, who did terrorist activities, he did terrible crimes. They would claim they're holy warriors, but they do acts of terrorism that are an abomination. Uh, His name was Abu Abu Zarqawi, and he's the one that killed the journalist, uh, Daniel Pearl. Right there on the internet, they had a video, um, and he beheaded him. It was a terrible, terrible crime. And they made this public spectacle where they killed a Jewish journalist. It was a terrible atrocity. And and the Western world was rightly outraged. 
It was a, a horrible crime, and it shocked the world. It was one of the first times that had ever been publicized like that, and it, it galvanized people into action. Uh, people went to war over it. People um, retaliated over it because it was such an obvious, ultra-extreme crime. Well, people don't understand the kind of a mindset that would foster that. Well, that is a very distorted extremist ideology and, and is evil in a multitude of ways. But one of the things that people don't understand is that his cell group, his terrorist cell group, was called monotheism and jihad. Monotheism and, monotheism and jihad. I don't know the words <clears throat> in Arabic or Farsi, but those were the words translated into English. And to that Muslim mindset, that Islamic mindset, the fact that there is one God is something to go to war over. If they feel like they're being threatened, if they feel like they are uh, being assimilated, if they're being forced, they will go to war over that. Now, Jewish people, um, practicing Jews, they too, by and large, believe that there is numerically one God. And I have even heard a rabbi say in a debate, he said, I would convert to Islam before I would to Christianity. And here's this rabbi and this imam and then this priest. <clears throat> the the rabbi made this statement, you know, this shocking statement, and, and people will say, well, why? What in the world? Why wouldn't you turn to Jesus before you would to Muhammad and Allah? And the rabbi's answer was simple. He said, because while I don't agree with their faith, I don't agree with their ideology, there's such a vast difference between the two of us, they at least know there's one God. They know that there's numerically one God. And so there is a conflict here where the vast majority of faith, Abrahamic faith believers in the world outright reject Trinitarian theology for this reason. It is anathema to the scriptures. Abraham never taught it. The scriptures never taught it. Jesus never taught it. It is not in the Bible. It did not exist until uh, the 3rd the century A.D., 2nd and 3rd century A.D. And, and because of that, it's rejected as heathenism, as a corruption. And, and I understand why, because it is. There's a lot of things that... that um, that were added over the years to corrupt the idea of the church. And that's what the Protestant um, Reformation was all about. It's what Martin Luther was all about. We're going to get rid of these Catholic ideologies. There were many, many things. Because the, the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages, they, they, they forbade men from reading the Bible. The Bible was written in a language men couldn't read. Europe was largely illiterate. That's why it's called the Dark Ages, because... The light was withheld from them. It wasn't until men could read um, Johannes Gutenberg and the printing press could make the Bible available. It was the first book ever printed on the printing press. And they, they made the Bible available to the common man. There was an explosion of literacy, which is the light. The truth is the light. And with that explosion came knowledge. It came the Renaissance. It came all, with that came all the, the liberties and the freedoms that that created the great works of art. There was this pent-up demand that just exploded onto the world because it had been held back by religion, by holy wars, by, by foolish um, dynamics that were, that were restrictive and were very, very um, wrong, very evil, that held the world in darkness. They call it the Dark Ages. So during that time, while men did not know this, it was about a 1,000 years, 
um, give or take. And during that time, there's a bunch of things that were added that are not in the Bible, like babies being baptized and sprinkling holy water on people. The idea of sprinkling itself um, is not in the Bible. Um, giving money for the forgiveness of sin, the sale of indulgences, um, the, the worship of Mary, praying to idols, praying to saints, all of these things were added during those dark ages when men didn't know any better. They just simply believed what had been told to them. So the Protestant Reformation was all about overthrowing that, getting rid of that, and they did. They, they, they rejected a lot of it. Some held on to some things and others didn't, and, and various religious groups splintered off. They were called Protestants. They were protesters, so they called them Protestants, of which Martin Luther was the first. Well, <laughs> the last remaining vestige is the Trinity. The Trinity is an invented construct that does not exist. It is not a real thing. And there are people that would get very angry about that statement. They would get very mad at me. They believe it's called the Holy Trinity. It is not holy. It does not exist. It is not in the Bible. The apostles never taught it. Jesus never taught it. And it is a big deal. It is a very big deal. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the reasons why. Um, one of the reasons is that um, they have corrupted the word one. The word one. When, when a Trinitarian person says, yes, we believe in one God, that's because, and, and I should say this, the average person, when they say one, they mean numerically one. And so even if you go to a Trinitarian church or you believe, you say you believe the Trinity, if you, if you think, when I get to heaven, how many thrones am I going to see? And you think there's going to be one throne, then basically you have the idea that there's one God, there's one who sits upon that throne. But true Trinitarianism teaches that there are three, three separate, distinct persons. They're very serious about that. Now, I'll just say this, that they took that word one, God is one. It says it over 300 times. God is one. There's none beside him, um, none like unto him, unto whom shall you make me equal, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, the greatest commandment in the Bible. They'll take that word one, and I've heard different ones doing it. Uh, Walter Martin did it. Cal Beesner did it. They did it with my grandfather um, years back in a debate they did. It's on YouTube. You can see it. They, they tried to say that the Hebrew word one is ichad, and ichad means composite unity. And they bring up the illustration of grapes in the, in the Hebrew uh, scripture. The Bible says that when the spies came out of the promised land that they, they had a cluster of grapes. But when it says a cluster of grapes, it says one cluster of grapes or echad grapes. And so one. And, and here you have this cluster of grapes, which is one, but there are all these individual grapes in that cluster. And so <clears throat> their contention is that that echad means plural unity, and that's the way it is with the Shema. So here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord does not mean he's numerically one. What it really means is that it's a cluster of persons or a group of persons, and it's a composite unity, kind of like the United States. The United States is one nation, but it's made up of several different states. So in that way, it can, he can be one, but yet there can be separate, distinct parts 
of individual functioning personalities and wills. And each one of them is co-equal, co-eternal, and consensual. Um, the problem with this is it is not in the Bible. None of that is in the Bible. Echad does not mean composite unity. Echad means one in the same way um, it means one in English. And that is the context defines it. So yes, it can mean composite unity, but it also can mean literally numerically one. It just depends on what context you're using it in. And you can ask any native Hebrew speaker this. It is not a great mystery. Um, but if you speak to a rabbi, if you speak to a theologian that comes from a strict monotheist background, they will tell you, and it is true, that never when it comes to the nature of God is Echad a composite. Never. It is always that he is one, numerically one. It is the basic fundamental element of the universe, of the cosmos, the, 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 the number one. It is the most concentrated, indivisible unit of, of the world. It, all, it is all built upon data. It is all built upon knowledge. And, and the fact that there can be one being is a fundamental truth that underpins and underlays all of the word of God. And I would even say the cosmos. Uh, the Bible tells us that through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are made are not made of things which do appear. So the word of God itself um, is built upon, and the cosmos is built upon the fact that there is one. That is a fundamental truth. And if you if you take that away, if you play with that, if you corrupt that, you're going to come up with something that is not the original church. And I'll even say this. Um, Satan has always been after the fact that there's one God. It's the reason he was thrown out of heaven. If you read your Bible, Satan is thrown out of heaven because he wants to be like God. Lucifer's thrown out. He wants to be like God. He's thrown out. The angels were cast out with him because they tried to corrupt the fact that there's one God. Every trial in your Bible is related, or most trials, are related to the fact that Satan wanted to corrupt the fact that there's one God. Daniel in the lion's den is because there was pressure to pray to the king. Daniel refused. So because he was a strict numerical monotheist, they throw him in the den of lions. It was polytheistic hands that threw him into that den. When the three Hebrew children... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, their Babylonian names, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When, when they refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, because they would not do it, because they were strict monotheists, because they said there is no other God but one, they threw them into the fiery furnace. So it was polytheistic hands that built that fiery furnace. All of these stories that we love and hold dear, somewhere in there was the fact that Satan tried to corrupt the fact that there is one God. The nations around the Jews were always polytheistic nations. They, 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 Israel was often seduced by Baal worship and worship to Ashtaroth and Molech and the different gods of the day, Dagon, the Philistine god, the fish god. <clears throat> these polytheistic false god cultures were always chipping away and fighting against the Israelites, the Hebrews. And so monotheism, strict monotheism, was always the defining trait. And the greatest persecution came 
from the fact that they weren't. And underneath that all, on all of that is the devil that was fighting against the word of God and against the nature of God. And so when, he, when we come to Christianity, Satan finally gets in. He finally is able to penetrate and he creates something he never could under the strict Judaism of the Old Testament. <clears throat> he forms a construct called the Trinity. And in that, he is able to take the focus off the fact that there is strictly one numerical God and he puts it and defracts it and splinters it into three persons, which over time is corrupted into what people believe today, what people say they believe. So they have managed to take the idea of one and make it what it doesn't mean. How more, how much more basic can you get than the idea of one? But somehow now one doesn't mean one. Now one means three. And that doesn't make sense. It is not true. Jews reject it. Muslims reject it. And before all of that, true apostolic Christians soundly reject it. And we will not back up on it. We will not compromise on it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the philosophical underpinnings here before we get to the scripture. <clears throat> One of the things that I'd like to share with you is the Trinity is logically unsound. It doesn't make sense um, logically. And here's what I mean by that. Because it didn't exist in the Bible, the Trinity basically says that, well, we learned it as we went along. And that is a, it's a logical improbability. It doesn't make sense. It didn't come about for a few centuries after. And, and some Trinitarian theologians will use the term concerning the early church. They'll call it primitive Christianity. Primitive Christianity. That's, that's funny because <clears throat> with primitive comes with the idea of um, unrefined. Um, we have grown smarter. We've grown wiser. We have improved on the product. And in that idea is the attendant idea, the accompanying idea that we know more than the apostles knew. Do we know more? Do I mean, if Jesus was so serious about teaching the Trinity, why didn't he use that word? If, 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 if the apostles were so serious about it, why didn't they tell us about that word? But they didn't. It's, it's not in the scripture. And, and to say that now, well, we now know it, then, then that means we believe that we grow smarter the further from Jesus we get. I want you to catch that. I want you to grab a hold of what I'm saying there. We get smarter the further away from Jesus and the disciples we get. See, I don't believe that. I believe that the disciples knew Jesus and his kingdom and his purpose in a way that uh, people today can't know him. They physically walked with him. They talked with him. They, they lived with him. They were the original um, 12. Their names are written in the foundation of heaven. They are part of the four and 20 elders. And, and to say that we know more than them is the height of arrogance. It is a logical fallacy. 
Another problem with the Trinity that is illogical is that it took several versions of the Trinity to get it where it's at today. So if uh, at the first council, um, when they when they introduced the idea of the Trinity, um, Tertullian's idea was actually that God was greater than the Son. And, and now that's considered a false doctrine. That's called subordinationism. Well, we can't have that because if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then it wasn't going to fit their narrative. It wasn't going to fit their doctrine. So Trinity 1.0 is now false doctrine. So they had to come up with the Trinity 2.0. They had to have another council. They all came together and said, ah, that's not going to work. Let's, let's refine this. Let's figure out some more stuff. Let's say it better than that. Let's better articulate it. And this was a big deal, <clears throat> and it was something that they were very accustomed to. The people that were coming in were Gentiles. They were not Jewish monotheists. They didn't care about the, Mish- the Shema like they should have. They didn't. By this time, most of the Jewish influence had waned, and the Gentiles, the Hellenized church, was now in full power. They threw out a lot of the original one God-believing people, numerical oneness, and now they've got to have a Trinity 2.0. They've got to have a second council and then a third council. And it was it was after several revisions that they finally came up with what we call the Trinity today. So if Tertullian, the father of the Trinity, if he would if we got a time machine and pulled him into today, he would be a heretic by today's Trinitarian standards. Do you see why that doesn't make sense? And that's not to talk about all the other stuff. Tertullian taught. Tertullian taught some weird stuff. If you dig into the other stuff that he believed and he taught, then, and this is the guy that came up with the term Trinitas. So if you go back and you dig into the stuff he taught, he became, eventually became a Montanist. He became um, anathema. He was expelled from the church. He was excommunicated because of some of the positions he held and the ideas he held. But they held on to that idea of the Trinity because it behind it was a devil that wanted to corrupt the absolute oneness of God, that God is one, that, that cornerstone of the church. If, if Satan can get rid of that foundation, it's like the psalmist said, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So this Hellenized group comes in, and they have to refine the Trinity over time. Here's why that matters. That means that it evolved. Well, truth doesn't evolve. No other truth evolves like that. Um, the laws of physics that hold this world together don't evolve. The, gravi- the gravitational constant doesn't evolve. Electromagnetism doesn't evolve. Uh, the weak and strong nuclear forces, they don't, they don't evolve. Gravity doesn't evolve. The constants, E equals MC squared, all, you name it, H2O, H2O that today that is in this water bottle is the same chemical formula and molecular structure that it was back in the days of Jesus. It doesn't evolve. It is true. It is it is uh, ordained by God to be true. Well, all of a sudden, you've got these religious and spiritual laws that are evolving. That's another way of saying they were corrupting it, and that's exactly what happened. So the fact that the Trinity evolved is a logical fallacy. If you brought a first-level Trinitarian into today's world, they would be a heretic. They would be in false doctrine based on today's definition of the Trinity. So, ladies and gentlemen, truth does not evolve.
It doesn't evolve. It is true from the foundation of the world. There is one God. He is indivisible, and there's only one. So it is logically unsound. Because it evolved, it cannot be true. It cannot be true that we get smarter the further away from Jesus we get. That cannot be true. That is a logical fallacy. So this is all part of the Greco-Roman um, Hellenized construct that was there at the beginning of the world, and and it is part of the assumptive framework that built up the denominational world that became strongly Catholic, which then became denominational and they threw out all the other stuff and they left that. They left a remnant there that they, they never were able to expel from, from what they believed. And oneness apostolics never believed that. There was always a church that believed that there was one God. And, and the truth is we have no problem talking to Jews or Muslims because we know that numerically there is one God, only one God. So... Having said that, um, I want to talk a little bit about caricaturizing that takes place. When people are talking, when they're dialoguing, they have trouble communicating because their feelings get involved. They feel like you're attacking them, and so they will uh, create a religious argument. It happens. If you've ever been in a religious argument, you know what I'm talking about. And we'll create caricatures. And one of those caricatures is that if you believe that there's one God, you deny that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Oh, you don't believe in the Trinity. You don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's not true. The Trinity doesn't exist. It is a doctrinal construct that nobody in the Bible ever talked about, that church creeds, creedal language talked about. Religion invented it. Tradition invented it. And it was calcified and put in concrete during the Dark Ages when men couldn't read along with all the other pollutions and abominations. So um, to, to caricaturize, what happens is they'll say, well, then you don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, we do. The Trinity is not the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is a very scriptural concept. We do strongly believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We know that there is one God who is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We just deny that it's a trinity. It is not a trinity. It is one being who reveals himself to mankind. And in his redemptive plan, he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, these are roles that he takes. These are facets of who he is. The idea that God has um, different ways in that he deals with man, mankind throughout the years, is a strong biblical uh, concept. Jehovah had several titles that revealed his nature over time. Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah uh, Rapha, Jehovah Mkadeshkim, um, uh, all of the Jehovah titles that revealed his nature. It, it's a very biblical concept. So the fact that he can be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but yet one God, is a very scriptural idea where we struggle and where we cannot um, compromise and we can't reach past is the idea that there are three separate people in that one God, three separate streams of consciousness. And so this is a very unscriptural idea. And we're going to answer you know, questions that people might have, questions like, 
Well, they did have different consciences, uh, Brother Urshan, because who was Jesus praying to? If, if they didn't have different consciences and different wills, and, and, and it's a good question, it's a good point, but just because Jesus prayed to the Father does not mean that there are two persons talking to each other. There is a very scriptural way of describing that that has nothing to do with more than one person in the Godhead. So one thing that, and if, if people call each other names, we're not going to get anywhere. If you create straw men to make people think negatively, then then we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, and some of those negative stereotypes or caricatures are the fact, or when people, when Trinitarians will say of one God-believing people, they'll say that we are Sibelians. Or the, and Sibelianism, <clears throat> as it has been defined by Trinitarians, is that you have to believe in the Father, and then, and then once God was done being the Father, then he stopped being the Father, now he's the Son, and and then when he's the son, he's no longer the father. And and then when he stops being the son, he's then the Holy Ghost. So it's a sequential revelation of who God is, that he has to be father, and then he has to be son, and then he has to be Holy Ghost. And that's not what we believe. And people should stop saying that. They should take the time to actually hear the articulation of the oneness position because he is the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost all at the same time. All at the same time. How can that be? Well, just because you can't do it as a human, I can't do it as a human, doesn't mean God can't do it. God is the shepherd at the same time he's the scapegoat. At the same time, he's the, he's the uh, lamb slain from the foundation of the world. At the same time, he is the door to the sheepfold. At the same time, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The same way that <clears throat> he can be any any facet that he represents to us, he can be alpha and omega. He can do that. He can be the root and the branch all at the same time. He can be here. He can be in all places. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. And so God is able to do that all at one time. Humans can't. God can. So he is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all at the same time. He does not stop being one just because he is the other. He can live in me and he can live in you. And just because he's in you doesn't mean he's not in me. He fills all things. That's part of what omnipresent means. And so he can fulfill these roles at the exact same time. So it's wrong to say that we're Sabellian and 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 you're and what is in uh, interpreted as Sabellianism, the negative connotation that comes with that. Another thing that people say is that we are Jesus only. That we say that we only believe in Jesus. We don't believe in the Father or the Holy Ghost. That's not true. That is a negative stereotype. In, in the Spanish world, they call it Jesus solo. You are Jesus solo. You are Jesus only. <laughs> it's not true. There is a Father. There is a Son. There is a Holy Ghost. And that is the revealed, redemptive nature of God towards man and how God deals with man. And, and here's a, a way to understand how we feel when people call us that. If people call us Jesus only... That's like if we took a Trinitarian person and said, well, then you're a three-God person. You believe in three gods. Most Trinitarian people will say, no, we don't. We believe in one God. There's three persons. And you don't understand the difference between being and personhood. If you understand being and personhood, then you would understand where we were. Well, it's not going to help anybody to caricaturize or demonize 
with negative stereotypical language. So we are not Jesus only, and we don't believe that the vast majority of Trinitarians do not believe there's three gods up in heaven. They do believe in three persons, which we do believe ultimately leads to polytheism. But we do we can appreciate the struggle to articulate something in, in an effort to strike that balance. We don't believe it's possible. We believe that it is a a logical fallacy. It is an unscriptural concept. But but we're not going to put words in people's mouths and misrepresent what they're trying to say. Um. So. The fact that there is one God has always been a cornerstone of God's people. These are just some of the reasons, the philosophical reasons, why apostolic Christians do not believe in the Trinity. Now, the Bible actually warns us against philosophy. I want to go to the book of Colossians chapter 2. And there is a portion of scripture here that I'm going to share with you, Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, he's, here's what he says. <clears throat> Beware lest any man spoil you. That word spoil doesn't mean give them all they want and give them all kinds of presents so that they're not thankful anymore and they become little spoiled brats and spoiled kids. It doesn't mean that. It means uh, to take spoils of war. And so what he is saying is don't let anybody plunder you. Don't let anybody steal what you've been given, the riches of what you've been given, because they will. If you allow these elements that he's getting ready to describe, if you allow them to come in, they will spoil you. So beware lest any man spoil you. How? Through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are in Jesus. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in Jesus. And philosophy will spoil you. It will rob you of what God gave you. The church was not built upon philosophy. It was built on theology, and they are two vastly different things. The philosophy of that day came from the Platonic and the, the Aristotle and um, the philosophers of that day that were built on the Greco-Roman ideologies of that day. The theology of the Bible comes from the prophets. It comes from the apostles. One is rooted in the wisdom of men. One is rooted in the wisdom of God, which is far higher. And the word philosophy, etymologically, it comes, uh, the word philo means love. Philos. Um, and, and sophi is knowledge. Love knowledge. Philo sophi. It's the same word that's in sophomore. One who is a, one who loves knowledge. One who embraces knowledge. So the love of knowledge is philosophy. It is a very different thing from theology, which is the study of God. Very, very, very different things. So let's tackle some things. Um, the Bible overwhelmingly states that there is only one God. And um, in the few places where it uses plural pronouns, it uses um, language that might lend itself to look like there are more than one persons in the Godhead, are not to say that there are more than one person in the Godhead, what it's highlighting is the 
the roles that God plays within himself. It is to highlight the differences in his administration and how he manifests himself to us. So to delineate that and to articulate the difference between the redemptive roles that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost played, God would use language that lent itself to plural pronouns. And there's a few places he did that. But overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, hundreds and hundreds of times he insists there is one God. There is none beside me. There is none before me. There is none after me. Over and over and over. And I can give you Deuteronomy 6.4, the greatest scripture in the, in the Bible. I can give you Colossians 2. I can give you Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Isaiah 44 and 8. A host of scriptures, 1 Timothy 3.16, over and over God claims there is one. God came in flesh. <clears throat> so let's describe some of the issues that people struggle with, and a lot of laymen struggle with this. Um, I'm going to take the last little bit of this podcast, and I'm going to describe a concept that the Hebrews understood very well, but Americans kind of struggle with. And you have to know that the Hebrews were very picture-oriented or, or picturesque in their language. A very, it's a very beautiful language. It's a very metaphoric language. Um, it is the language of the prophets. And so, you know, the book of Revelation with all of its vivid images and, and the vivid language of the prophets, it's a beautiful, beautiful revelation to man by God. And when God describes himself, he describes it using these Hebrew metaphors and this Hebrew language. So I'm going to show you an example of how God talked to us. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, it says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord. Did you know the Lord had an arm? <laughs> Well, the reason why that matters is because a lot of people want to know if Jesus and God are the same person, how can Jesus sit or stand at the right hand of God? And in our literalist American way, we see a little Jesus standing next to a big God. The big God usually has white hair and a beard, and then there's this little younger guy who's on his right hand, and I guess the Holy Ghost is at his left hand, or he's some little transparent guy floating around somewhere because he's a ghost and he's holy. <laughs> so the literalist interpretation of that, the simplistic interpretation of that is not accurate. And it's a, a sad attempt to try to find out how God operates. How can Jesus and God be the same if he's at the right hand of God? Now, the answer to this is in this beautiful poetic language. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And if you read that, verse 2, he goes on to say, He shall grow up before him as a root out of a dry ground. And it goes on to describe the arm of the Lord. Now, if I'm describing an arm, it's not a he, it's an it. It's, a, it's an extension of me. So if, if I have my arm, I don't say of my arm that I'm going to take him and grab this bottle of water, I would say I'm going to take it and grab this bottle of water because it's an extension of me, but it is me. It's part of my person. 
But God is a spirit. God doesn't have an arm in the sense that we think of arms. So for the Hebrews, when God was talking to them, just like you would have your right hand, that was the doing part of your life. It was how you wrote. It was how you grasped. It was how you worked. Um, David said, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. So the, the dexterity and the strength and the power that a man would have or a woman would have in their right hand, God used that to describe Jesus. Jesus was the doing of God. It, he was the active member of God in the earth. So just like I would reach out and grab something with my right hand, God reached out and grabbed with his right hand Jesus to do his will and to do his purpose on earth. And the closest thing we have that in our world is we can say of someone who helps us a lot and who understands us greatly, we could say of him or her, he is my right-hand man or she is my right-hand woman. That doesn't mean she's attached to your body. It doesn't mean literally she's my right hand. It means that she is the active doing in my life. What would I do without him or her? They are my right hand. That is how Jesus is at the right hand of God. And so the Bible says, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, the fact that it's revealed means it's hidden. It's not easy to see. You got to dig a little bit. And it is hidden to people, and, the, and people do not believe the report of the Lord. They do not have a revelation of the arm. But if you want a revelation of the arm, understand it is not an it. It is a he. He shall grow up before him as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we would desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. <clears throat> um, and it goes on to, to speak of, of the arm, it, to reveal the arm. Um, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Yet he was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our uh, iniquities bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. And with his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. This is a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. The arm of the Lord is not an it. It is a he. And it is Jesus. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. And so when Jesus is at his right hand, he is the right arm. It doesn't mean it's a physical place or a location. It means that he is the active agent of God in the earth, doing the will of God, just like your right hand does things for you. Not only that, a spirit doesn't have an arm. An omnipresent spirit doesn't have a side. If, if Jesus sits at the right hand, find the right hand of God, and he's omnipresent. How would you find the right side of God? If you got in your car and started driving, you think you could drive far enough to <clears throat> get to his right side? Is there a place on earth where you could find his right side? I don't think so. The Bible says heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. <laughs> if you went to the moon, if you got on a SpaceX rocket and you got to the moon, you think you'd find the right side of God? If you got to the, 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 the planet Mars, do you think you'd find the right side of God? The answer is no. 
you wouldn't even have scratched the surface because he's omnipotent. He is already there. There's no place you can go that God isn't. So God doesn't have a side. He doesn't have a right side or a left side or an up or a down. To God, he fills all things. The Bible says he is before all things and by him all things consist. So God doesn't have a side for anybody to sit at. So when it says that he has an arm, that is what they call anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language. The Greek word for man is anthropos. Whenever it says man, the word is anthropos. And whenever it speaks of change, it speaks of morph. The word is morph. So anthropomorph. In other words, I'm going to change, they, they call it anthropomorphic language because it's God's way of changing the language to fit us. It's talking to us in a way we can understand. God dumbs it down for us with anthropomorphic language. So let me give you an idea of anthropomorphic language. The Bible says of God <clears throat> that, that we can take shelter under his wings. It says of God that... Um, when Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, he says to Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks? Well, does that mean God's a big chicken? Does it mean that God has wings? The Bible says under his feathers you will trust. Does it mean that we, God is somehow flapping around heaven with these wings? And, and it's absurd to think that. But it is a Hebrew way of describing the brooding nature of God, the nurturing nature of God. And like a hen would gather its chicks, that's how God gathers his children. The Hebrews understood this very well. Well, but but to I to 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 think that that God has wings is is, is absurd literalism. And people who have very little understanding of the scriptures, they don't they don't make allowance for that. So God doesn't have wings like that. He's not a bird. Um, it's anthropomorphic language where God uses things that you know and you can easily identify with, and he uses it to describe himself. It's the closest thing to God that you can relate to. So when the scripture says of the Exodus, when, when, when Israel came out of Egypt, it says that God, um, that his nostrils parted the Red Sea. Well, that's anthropomorphic language because people can easily identify with somebody blowing through their nostrils and, and, and the, the exhalation and the, the blowing of the wind um, part of the Red Sea. But does that mean that a big, gigantic, godly, divine nose came down out of heaven and blew the waters apart? <laughs> well, the absurdity of it is striking, but, but that's not what it means at all. And so to, to, not allow for anthropomorphic language is to miss what God's doing. This is not saying God has an arm, God has a right side, God's big divine nose part of the Red Sea, or that God has feathers. What it means is it's a descriptive term to describe the nature of God. And that's what the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is as well. In redemption, God is a Father in creation. He is a Son in redemption he is a Holy Ghost in his regenerative work in us today. But just because God fulfills those roles doesn't mean that there's three guys up in heaven jostling for room and arguing and fussing and, and talking and, and, and having uh, discourse. It's not, it's not, there's not three people trying to figure this thing out. 
It's anthropomorphic language that describes the relationship between the roles that God plays in our lives. So let's talk a little bit about that because this is not persons, but these are roles, they are relationships, they are administrations of God by which he deals with us. A very easy way of understanding this is I have several different ways that I function. I am a father. And in being a father, I have a role as a father. I I do certain things. I am a certain way. I have certain responsibilities as a father. But then I am also a son. At the same time, I'm that father. And and the, the role of a son is different than the father. I treat my parents differently than I treat my children. But I'm the same guy. I, with my parents, I love them, I honor them, I help take care of them as they're growing older. Um, they gave birth to me, and I am a son to them. I will always be their little Nathan. But I, my role with my children is different. I am dad. I, I have a different role. I'm a provider. I'm a protector. I am an educator. I, I am a, a confidant. And, and so... I can be a father and a son at the exact same time, but it doesn't mean I'm three people. I'm also a citizen of the United States. I, I, I'm also a pastor of a church. In that exact same way, God can fulfill those roles and still be one person. That is a much more scripturally sound approach to who God is. So <clears throat> now there's a lot of people that have questions. We get this all the time and people make hay out of this, but Let's talk about it. When it comes to Jesus, who was Jesus praying to in the garden? Who was he praying to? Um, and when he was on the cross, who was he talking to? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Who was he praying to? Who was he crying out to? If they're, if they're the same person, how in the world can they, can Jesus pray and talk? To him, And I will say this, not only did Jesus talk to God as he walked the earth, but God talked to Jesus before he was born. And that's what I mean by anthropomorphic language. And that's what Paul meant by beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and traditions of men and rudiments of the world. People say, well, God couldn't talk to Jesus before he was born. Therefore, God, Jesus must have always existed as an eternal son. Well, <clears throat> the idea of an eternal son is not in the Bible either. Um, Jesus is God and was God and was with God in the Logos that John chapter 1 talks about. But it doesn't mean that there's this invisible son who existed from the beginning of the world, uh, literally and physically. If so, uh, the earthly son, we know who his mother was. It was Mary. But who was the, who was the eternal son's mom? Um, the idea of sonship speaks of begottenness. It's an earthly relationship. Eternal son is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. Um, and, and, and it lends itself to polytheism when you begin to think like that. So when, when God spoke in creation and said, let us make man in our image, I firmly believe that he was speaking to Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says of Jesus that he was before all things, and by him all things consist. It says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Does that mean there was a literal cross set up somehow cosmically, and there was a, a, a small 
woolen creature with hoofs hanging on that cross? No, no. This is euphemistic, metaphoric, prophetic language that from the foundation of the world, the idea that Jesus Christ would be crucified was always true. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It physically happened at Calvary, but it always existed in the mind of God. In the same way, the Son always existed in the mind of God, and in that, it is as real as anything. So, um, there is no eternal Son. The Son he is called the only begotten Son. The Scripture says, this day have I begotten thee. So, Jesus is that Son. Now, how can that Son pray to God? Well, that doesn't show that there's two persons in God. It shows whenever you see Jesus praying to God or what looks like a plurality, instead of thinking that there's two persons or there's two gods, what you should think is a division in humanity and deity. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Jesus was a real human. Jesus was a real man like me. Like, like any human, he was born of Mary and the Holy Ghost overshadowed him. And see, there's another point. Um, if the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and she was with child, then who was the father? Because if you're going to be take a literalist approach and not use anthropomorphic language, then the father should have overshadowed Mary. But no, the Bible says the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. That makes the Holy Ghost the father. Well, then what's the father? And the point is not to be a literalist biological narrative. The point is to highlight the roles that the Father, Son, Holy Ghost play in redemption towards fallen mankind. <clears throat> so, Jesus was a real human. He, he had to be to be an adequate substitute for us. If he's going to die for our sins, he can't be a half-human. He can't be a superhuman. He can't be a puppet with a divine hand guiding it or animating it. He had to be a real human. He, he, he experienced every high that we did, every low that we did. He walked this earth as a true human. That human had a spirit. It had a mind. It had an independent will. And yes, that human will was different from the divine will of God. And that is why. Jesus cannot know the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man and not the angels of heaven. Only the Father can know that. Well, the reason that is so is because he had a human mind. He had a human spirit. That human spirit got depressed. It got upset. It got angry. It, it, it struggled with things. It was a separate thing. His humanity was it was, there is a separation there. And that's why when he prayed in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, if, if you are a Trinitarian and you believe they're co-equal, they are co-eternal and they're consensual, that's a problem. Because what that means is then in the garden, you have person one praying to person, or person two, rather, praying to person one. Oh, I made a mistake here. <clears throat> I really don't want to do this, but you know what? If you really want this, Father, then I'll do it. Not my will. Well, a second divine will can't be wrong. By nature, if it's God, 
it has to be perfect in all things. And so God two can't contradict God one or person two can't contradict person one. So it's not like a second divine will was it in clash with the first divine will, but this was a human being who was submitting his will to the spirit of God, just like I have to, just like you have to, not my will, but thy will be done. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's his human spirit being committed to the spirit of God, just like any person has to do. And and this is how the man Christ Jesus can pray to God. Jesus prayed just like I pray. And here's a real easy way of figuring out how this works. How can God be in heaven and yet in Jesus at the same time? Well, well, I have his spirit living in me. And many of you that are watching this, you have or you believe that you have his spirit living in you. Well, just because he's in me, does that mean he's not in you? And just because his spirit is in me, does that mean that when I pray, I don't pray to him? Do I pray to myself? Do I somehow know all things? No. Even though his spirit is within me, I still pray to him. And it's the same exact way with Jesus Christ. Though the spirit of God was in him, he still prayed to God. The man Christ Jesus prayed to God. And so anytime you see that separation of Jesus praying to God, it's not person two praying to person one. It is the man praying to to the Spirit of God. The humanity is dealing with the Spirit of God. And it's the same thing on the cross. My God, my God. Well, if, if he's God, how can person one be his God? And, and do gods pray? If Jesus is God, how is he praying? Praying is a very human thing. But yet we see Jesus praying because in his humanity, he was the Son of God. His humanity was submitted to God, and he prayed to God just like any man would pray to God. And the same stuff that was in Jesus is the same stuff that's in me, is the same that is in every believer's heart when they have the Spirit of God living in them. The difference between us and Jesus is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is God uh, from birth. He was God before the creation of all things. And so that God robed himself in flesh. That's Jesus. That is not me. We are sons and daughters by adoption. We are sons and daughters by the born-again experience. We are not divine. We have his spirit in us. Jesus was divine. But there are enough similarities to where you can see how even though God was in him, yet he still prayed to God who filled all things. That is how Jesus can pray to God and not be a different divine being. <laughs> so <clears throat> is he at God's right hand? Is he, um, does the fact that he is Jesus and he's praying, does that mean that he is a somehow violating the nature of the one God? The answer is no. And, and another one we, we commonly get, and this will be the last one that I deal with. Um, when Jesus went down to be baptized by John in the Jordan river, he, he comes down, he's baptized, and when he gets down there, he, he's baptized. The Bible says that the heavens are opened, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Ghost comes down like a dove upon him. Now, right there, a lot of people hit the pause button and say, Look, there's the Trinity right there. There's a voice from heaven. <clears throat> there is a dove coming down. 
and there's Jesus. So there's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And look, there's three three people there. Well, no. The Bible says that he, the Spirit came down like a dove. The voice from heaven came, and Jesus was physically there. It doesn't say it's a trinity. It doesn't say there's three divine beings that are represented there. What that is is a beautiful picture of how the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost work together. And if you really want to look at it, um, and in its true context, Jesus was giving a template for the Acts 2.38 message that a person must be baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost if they want the heavens to open up. And I could take that a step further, and I could talk about that there will be a sound from heaven. There will be a heavenly confirmation when it happens. God will speak from heaven through you. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. When, when we come, when, when the early church came and the Holy Ghost was poured out first, they were all baptized. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke with other tongues. As the Spirit, as God spoke through them, there will be a voice from heaven. There will be an, a dissension by the Holy Ghost onto believers, and we will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation, did that, surely we should do that. This is a <clears throat> scriptural template, and that's borne out by the fact when John said, I shouldn't do this, you need to baptize me. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so, I must fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to give a blueprint and a template to all my followers, and I want them to do what I'm doing. So yes, you must be baptized. Yes, you must receive the Holy Ghost. Jesus showed us in metaphoric, typified fashion, and that is exactly what we, each and every one of us, are supposed to do. There's a lot of theology to that. If you want to see that, you can look at the Line Upon Line series. But my point is that is not trying to describe the Trinity. That is trying to illustrate the roles of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in how we are redeemed through the born-again experience. Praise God. I feel my preach coming on me right now. <laughs> so I just wanted to take a little time and try to clear up a few misconceptions, a few caricaturizations, um, negative stereotypes that people have hurled at each other for many, many years. Explain why we do not hold to the idea of a trinity, we do not believe in different persons uh, in God. We believe in manifestations of God, relationships to man that God reveals himself in the same way that a person, one person, would reveal himself in several different ways or herself. So these are some ideas. Uh, this is why we don't believe in the Trinity. It's why we do believe in the absolute numerical oneness of God and uh, share this with your friends. Talk to them about it. If you have somebody struggling with this idea, uh, turn them onto the video, and maybe it can help them. And if you don't know how to articulate this, you know, uh, bookmark some of the spots in here, and and maybe it can be a blessing to you to help you better explain and believe what it is that you're trying to say. Thank you so much for your time. God bless you. I look forward to speaking with you soon.